Welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbun on Twitter, and I'm very happy to have with me uh, one of my longtime friends uh, from Twitter, Andrew Dunn, uh, who is at A-N-N-D-R-A-A-D-U-N-N on Twitter. A wonderful follow if you like leftist politics, UK politics, video games, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Andrew, thanks for being with us today. Hi, glad to be here. Yeah. Um, my just just may as well say it um, because everyone gets it wrong. Uh, the like, yeah. My um, Twitter name is Andra Adon. That's how it's pronounced. Okay. <laughs> the, um, not the, not that anyone would understand. So it's a good thing you spelled it right. Uh, yeah, I actually I do that as a matter of course, just because uh, my last name uh, Strunk is ends up uh, as my uh, my poor wife found out when uh, cause she ended up taking the name and like <laughs> she she found out after very very quickly that you will get it spelled strong or strung or strunk or all sorts <laughs> of things if you don't just like spell it out so it's become like a um, almost a reflex to just spell everything out especially handles so um, but yeah I, I actually I've, I've never heard it pronounced either so that's that's uh that's news I can use too yeah <laughs> um, so Andrew, uh, we were talking a little bit about it before, and I really liked the way you said it. Um, you're coming on to talk with us a little bit about historiography and history and games, and how would you kind of frame that discussion? Uh, well, I think I, I've always been into um, history and everything like that since I was very young. Uh, and naturally, as I got into video games, I got into historical video games, a lot of them are historically set or deal with history in some sort of manner. Uh, and I think the way that games present history or narratives of history or uh, the historiography that they draw on to form their settings, their mechanics, all that kind of thing, I think it's very interesting to look at that and see how they portray different periods, um, different ways of looking at history, and also how that can then have an impact potentially on how the players see the periods that are being dealt with. Um, or how, how the, the players' views get formed but, uh, or affected by presentations of history in games. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because, you know, some of the first, you know, I, I guess I guess in some ways, uh, it, and this is from an American perspective, but an American perspective that was growing up with video games. So I, I assume in a lot of ways our experience with video games is probably similar, even if our experience of, uh, of schooling might be a little different. Um I know, like, structurally, our, our various school systems are, are quite uh, different. Um, but there's a way in which, like, you know, the first instances of history you get are from, uh, you know, school. You get, uh, at least in America, it's generally, um, you know, national history first, and then we build out into world history, uh, which is, you know, quite emblematic in some ways of our <laughs> politics. Um, but uh, it's funny because that is you know, parallel with game versions of history, either allegorized in games like, I don't know, um, I'm thinking of RPGs that I played when I was particularly malleable, things like um, uh, Chrono Trigger or Xenogears or Final Fantasy mm. VII that have allegories of, of a certain kind of like industrialized nation state. And then, you know, games like um, uh, Civilization or, or um, the Paradox games, which actually have like literal histories in them as well. I mean, there is a way that that is just as formative as any sort of course uh, could be in producing um, an understanding of world history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Civilization is a good example. And 
in terms of what I'm thinking of, I tend to think of civilization as being more on the allegorical side than in terms of actual history. Because right. as, as anyone um, who's played it knows, generally it's a sort of randomly generated map and it takes, it's almost like it's playing historical Mad Libs to a degree. Um, <laughs> sure. With, um, you know, like you end up with Gandhi as a prehistoric leader and that sort of stuff. Um and it's it's it follows it's basically Whig history the game in which all of society is progressing ever onwards, um onwards and upwards, uh to towards a particular future point or present day point in some of the games. Um and it, he even adds in like from say Civilization Four and Onwards, there's the 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 great man mechanic, which is it's right. literally the great man theory, but into into the game where a single person, uh, randomly assigned to you, appeared. Uh, you can start a golden age with them or something. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so, it's it's so interesting because like at the same point, you you would be hard pressed in some ways to produce a game that would be like uh, mechanically based on I don't know dialectical understandings of history right it would be very difficult to build in contradictions within the game it would be a, it would be a lot more um it's not an impossible thing to do um and uh, i don't i don't think so i think it's uh, i think it could it could be done um but it's certainly a lot more complex because historic historical understanding uh you you can be more or less complex to different degrees. And civilization definitely pre presents a very simplistic view of history. And mm -hmm. it's one that, if you take it at face value, it can end up giving you a completely different or incorrect um, understanding of how history actually op operates. For instance, um, you can end up with, uh, in some of the games at least, not not sure about all of them, but I think most, um, there's an um, American civilization. Um, mm. So you can have essentially white america um you know founded in 4000 bc right from the uh, and, and, and it's, it's, you know, at that point you're getting quite close to how like the um apartheid south africa saw itself <laughs> as being like the original settlers and stuff like that yeah um, exactly and, it, and it's uh, such a it's such a it's such a progressive vision uh not progressive in, in a political sense but progressive as in like as you said it before like wig history where it is sort of like always moving forward to something better um which is a very video game thing too like it's it's very much like na the nature of video games that we would expect an uncomplicated origin that was that led to sort of a greater thing in the end um you know with with even even if you think about sort of like the basic premise of video games building levels or progressive difficulties there is this idea of like simplistic origins complex but greater endings yeah and a lot of that is with, with civilization in particular you can see it's kind of um sort of roots as a board game sort of mm -hmm. that sort of philosophy um and how that became more complex was as, as the series has gone on uh, in ways that you couldn't represent in a board game very easily, not without it being one of those uh, ones that takes over your entire house uh, <laughs> right. with uh, big canvas maps of the Pacific Theatre or whatever. You need, uh, you need a whole weekend to learn how to play the game and then another weekend where you teach your friends how to play the game, right? And, and then another weekend where you d d desperately apologize to them for wasting their time. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, no, it's it, it, that's exactly right, and and 
what I what I find really interesting about the way you're framing it, though, is that you know there's a way that we consider board game mechanics to be um, I don't know simply a matter of course, maybe is what I'd say. Where there are games like Monopoly, where you could kind of argue that there's you know a renter uh, rentier <laughs> mindset, and you don't have to argue it; it's it's in there. Yeah, uh, you, you could argue that it's you know idealizing it in some way or another. Um, which I, I would argue it is, but there's games like, you know, Trouble or Sorry or Candyland or whatever that you would argue like the mechanics are just the mechanics. They don't actually yeah. suggest anything philosophical. And I think that's a mistake. And, and you're sort of pointing out why it's a mistake, because even sort of like the most innocent mechanics have a kind of philosophy of uh, progression behind them or a philosophy of uh, narrative or well, I guess, yeah, I guess narrative and, and insofar as it's sort of like the origin or core to all of our narrative strategies, historiography behind it as well. Yeah, well, that's absolutely the case. Um, but where I find historical games uh, or games that deal with like history or politics explicitly mm -hmm. to be particularly interesting is that the ideology of these things becomes laid bare. Um, because right. no matter what you're doing, you have to uh, apply some form of ideology or interpretation of history or politics to the game to make it into a mechanic. You need to take some kind of um, approach. Uh, a good a good example of this sort of thing is, and it might not it might not actually be um, an intentional ideological statement on the part of the developers. The developers may have just picked the ideology that the ideological interpretation that they felt fit the mechanics best. A really good example of this is um, with the Paradox games, and I'll probably be talking about Paradox games quite a lot, Great. because um, they're big on this sort of stuff. But um, one of their most notoriously impenetrable ones is Victoria 2, <laughs> uh, which is yep. a 19th century I'm up. Uh, <laughs> 19th yeah, it, century I'm up, I like that. <laughs> uh, it's kind of... It's, it's, its aim is to portray a hundred years between 1836 and 1936. Uh, so kind of a, the long 19th century, if you want to call it that. I mean, the extremely um, long 19th century. That's, uh, <laughs> that's bold yes. to, to put it past World War One. That's, that's impressive. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the part of the reason for that is that there's, uh, you're not guaranteed to have World War One actually happen, or you might have more than one World War One. <laughs> essentially, um, just because of it, it's it's not going to deeply script it. So um, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but so it's aiming to model that hundred years of history, and it's primarily about uh, industrialization and the expansion of imperialism and technological advancement and so on. Uh, so they needed some way to model the economic system. Sure. Because uh, a lot of it is to do with how uh, the emergence of capitalism and so on uh, works and how that builds factories, which then build go create goods, and the goods get then transported and how that functions as trade. Um, so they needed to make an incredibly complex model of an economy. The problem is that in reality... Uh, the economy is not mechanistic and, you know, humans aren't rational actors, all that sort of stuff. Um, well, and certainly the, the economy itself, the, the the idea behind the economy is that it is the ultimate rational actor, and of course the economy isn't an actor at all. It's sort of... 
That's yeah. a, that's the economist's fallacy. It's it's. I mean, when you think about the idea of actually modeling an economy in something that isn't just abstraction, which was what most games do when they have an economy, it's just like, oh, you you gain this much money, you lose this much money, whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> Victoria Two tries to go deeper into that. So what it ended up doing was um, essentially endorsing a very basic kind of supply and demand model okay. of economics, but also uh, it more or less follows like dominant neoclassical theory about um, like how the best way to develop a state is, which is sort of mostly laissez-faire development, allowing the capitalists to do their thing themselves with judicious but sparse state involvement. Okay. Um, then that was the only way that, that, that the game like really lets you work. You can you can choose to be a complete interventionist, but this is something that a human player really can't do because you end up having to place thousands of factories by hand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and managing like factories in every single province, and it's something that you, the human player cannot do without getting completely sickened of it of the whole endeavor. I can um, only imagine, and it's, so it's it's a four X game too. So it's not like, is it is it does it work in real time or is it? It's it's possible real time. Um, it's oh, what well, all, could, all the paradox of what games work. It's like okay. it's um it's it's real time, but every sort of tick of the clock is like an hour or whatever oh. or a day. I can't remember the exact time scale it gives in Victoria. Um, so, and you can like speed it up or slow it down or just pause it. Uh, so it, hypothetically, a, a human could do it, but a human would never do it. Yes, um, okay. that's the thing. Um, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be punctilious. I was actually wondering if it was like literally possible. Oh no, no, oh, no! Yeah. It's, it, it is possible. It's just, mm. um, it's no one would want to. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, I believe the first Victoria game, which I didn't play. Um, in that one, the most successful economies were interventionist ones because they use a, a different model for the economy. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like the game ends up endorsing a different economic philosophy depending on how it's been designed. Um, in fact, the le- one of the designers of um, Victoria, who uh, he gave he gave a talk based, saying that they basically based their idea of how the game's economy should work off certain elements of Marxist theory. Um, in terms of uh, resource extraction from colonies to fuel um, in, like industrial developments in the core nations. Sure, that's uh, interesting. But he himself is like openly declared himself to be a Thatcherite. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but you've got there a, a case with the designer choosing a completely different economic philosophy or political philosophy from his own in order to one that fits the mechanics um that's really interesting and and it 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 speaks to this like it speaks to this ideological uh position that i think a lot of thatcherites or or uh and it's become such a buzzword but uh neoliberals um might argue about where like wherein you know i think you could argue that marx if you're delving into neoclassical economics Capital Volume One's one of your better bets for your money because <laughs> one of your better banks for your buck because the 
you know, he basically takes to task every neoclassical economist. <laughs> he just hold up in, in the library reading all the all the issues of the Economist, and uh, <laughs> and you know, God help him. The, hmm? God help him. Yeah, uh, you know, I I he had to be the only one who would do it. I, again, I can't imagine <laughs> another person would want to. But you know, there, there's a way that like if you if you wanted a sort of singular critique of it all or a singular vision even of it all you could take capital volume one and say like yeah i disagree with this with this philosophy but i'm going to produce it because it's the most condensed vision um i think the ideology there is this idea that the and i i, I think it's a really wonderful way to to express this bizarre um historical gap in a lot of people's um a lot of conservatives or reactionary thinking um where yeah, you could say, oh, in you know, 1848, Marxism might have been uh, explanatory of something, but by the time of Thatcher, by the time of sort of like the the conservative governments of the 80s, that kind of resource extraction from the colonies is over. That's a historical note. It's not a continuity. Yeah. It's a, it's a distinction. Yeah, the, I mean, you, you see that a lot nowadays with um, the complete denial that imperialism exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, from main, mainstream quarters. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and even I, in even in the academy, there was. I remember this brief but deeply distasteful argument about whether or not um, American literature should count as uh, post-colonial literature, um, which I would say no. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you can argue for yeah. sort of like um, native people's literature in well, America. Well, this is this is a, this is also the thing. Are you are you counting, uh, for instance, uh, yeah, Black American sure, yeah, writing yeah, and... as being American? Because when I think of some, if if someone says the great American novel to me sarcastically, I don't think Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, it's it's very interesting, and like there's it, it. What's so distasteful about the argument to me is that it 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 slims down those complexities into this question about um, almost historical triviality, which I think is another risk in in um, mechanizing uh, history or, or making history uh, slave to game mechanics is that you get this trivialization where it's like, yeah, maybe maybe American literature can count as post-colonial because they were a colony. Um, <laughs> and, and then it's just like it's just like a complete um, misapprehension or you know willful ignorance of all of the various dynamics that have gone into making, you know the nation out of the colony and what what that has done to actual people who have existed and um in many cases no longer exist in the world yeah um that's actually um brings brings me neatly to another of the paradox games which is uh europa universalis which did actually start as an adaptation of a board game Hmm. um wow i cannot imagine the europa universalis board game (laughs) it's um (laughs) I believe the very, very first Europa Universalis was quite close to the board game in many ways, but then <laughs> they've uh, got significantly more complicated over the over time. I've only um, played four, so I guess that's why it's it's mm. difficult for me to imagine. Uh, well, four, four, um, they've four is definitely the one where they've come closest to a kind of uh, honest portrayal of colonialism because the, the period mm. covered is, is you've played the game you, you know yes. this um is, is between 1444 and 1821 right. so it's essentially the, the expansion of european colonialism across the planet um 
it, it can turn out slightly differently in the game as depending on what happens, but that's the, the basic idea. Um, now, uh, the these games include you know culture groups, religions, um, the different uh, like indigenous tribes and stuff in America. Um, the you've got granular cultures of like it's not just say um it's, it's not just native american it's you know it's all it's like the um yes, seminole is the, the cherokee the, the yeah Navajo, right, sure. yeah but but also like even the small much smaller like uh le- less well-known mm. groupings that kind of stuff and sure. um so there's actually with a, a reasonable amount of uh commitment to portraying the native americans as um having actual existence that isn't completely passive mm. um whereas europa universalis 3 largely uh had the americas just as blank um and Euro- european uh, nations would colonize areas and the natives were just represented by a counter that said natives 1000 in a province oh. and stuff like that and that's that still there to an extent um, where it's meant to represent indigenous people that aren't necessarily organized on a state level mm-hmm. uh, and it sort of fits more for European Universalis 3 than it does for Victoria 2 which does, which does include the period for the scramble of Af- for Africa and um, Paradox have come a long way since Victoria 2 was made. Um, at the time, they caused something of a stir in the community when someone asked why there were only three actual African states in the game. Uh, in a period where there were significantly more, you know, of course, yeah, actual political entities in Africa that. Like, Ended up being conquered, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the the reason given at the time was that all of Africa was conquered by one hundred white men with machine guns. Oh no! Um, so there was no point in having more than the three. So in in Victoria too, almost all of Africa is just blank, and will do almost nothing to resist colonization. Uh, Except mechanically, they decided they didn't want you to be colonizing Africa too early, so they gated it behind technology. You have to have, I think, I seem to remember it's malaria, like treatments, and also some. I think it's, I think, something to do with machine guns as well. So the the natives are essentially treated as this in the same way as communicable diseases in terms of just being something that makes colonization harder for you. Um, yeah, and, and that's and, and, that in and itself then, is like a really. I think it's a. That's the kind of thing that is kind of insidious in terms of how it portrays an aspect of history, and completely elides like the active resistance um, by African kingdoms and states to colonization. Uh, one of the few that's actually in the game as an active player is the Zulu, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there were far more examples than just them. Sure, and I, I think like you know, there's a there's another way in which the it's not just I mean the, it, 
most insidiously they're portrayed as communicable diseases, you know, alighted or um, uh, analogized as a sort of malaria um, themselves. But there's also, which of course is is awful, but there's also, um, you know, I'm thinking about the ways in which games like um, Rise of Nations uh, uh, cordons off specific areas to your specific technologies to you, and it's always by historical epic, right? You you can... Yep. Um, level up essentially your historical epic by accomplishing certain things um, and this is a, a very familiar mechanic in these games um, but it, imagining this as a historical epic right like you have to do a couple of things until you get Africa is again kind of like re reinstantiating this version of uh, it's reinstantiating this version of like yeah it's, it's there for the Europeans to have it's it's their rightful thing to have ultimately yep. um the the resources the land the the people just are there but they're you know they have to get civilized as well and it's it it it's a strange thing to see it's a strange thing for me to hear and to see post uh well in 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 the 90s and 2000s for sure but even like post fanon like even after you know the even after algeria like the it's just so odd to have uh that represented in in that way yeah um and the other thing with these sort of games, because they're so detached in terms of the player's perspective, you can often get um, forget exactly what you're doing. Um, yeah. In Europa Universalis, there's a button you can press which will spend some of your diplomatic points to change the culture in a province. And it takes about six months or a year to okay. in-game in, in time to change the culture from one to the other and mechanically that's just you know flipping a switch essentially and and a wait time because yeah you can't have something immediately right yeah but when you then think about what this is actually representing you know is it something like the plantation of ulster where the mm. scots and english settlers were moved in specifically to try and you know take <laughs> over the culture there and or or is it actual active like ethnic cleansing or um is is it right is it a campaign of like elimination of language in a year? Um, it's that, is yeah, it, is terrifying. It, yeah, um, there, there's an argument that, um, and I don't think it's, it's it's a criticism of the games exactly. There's an argument that you you can't play these games as a good guy, uh, at least yeah. not at, at least not and be successful as a nation. Um, and I think the the one the one of the Paradox games that gets this best, and I think this it's because it's um intimately woven into how the game plays, is Crusader Kings two, which deals with the medieval period and um the nobility. It's a deeply pessimistic game. Absolutely. Um because you're exclusively playing nobility of some description, even if it's uh, in like a merchant republic, you're still like a noble family in the in, in this merchant republic. Uh, so you you control the one character at one time, but it's essentially the ruler of whatever title you have, uh, mm. and then you, it follows you, you're down through the, the dynasty, the children, or other relatives. Um, what you end up doing, you it, it, you see, end up seeing that even if your character, because they all have traits and so on, even if your character is kind and charitable and so on. Um, you're still a medieval aristocrat who is um, 
you know, shutting the gates of the castle to keep the plague out when there's a, a plague <laughs> and letting your people, like, die in the streets or sending thousands of them to their deaths due to vassal obligations uh, when you raise your, raise your levies to go to war or... Um, you know, any, anything you do, you you can't play that game and not do at least one bad thing at some point. Even if you're not going as far as assassinating children or, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, like torturing people in your dungeons, sure. uh, right. you, you, you cannot play that as a morally good person. It, 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 the, the central thesis of the, of the game is that all feudal nobility is terrible. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting that something like Crusader Kings, because it is so, or, or Crusader Kings two, because it is so um, distant from its source material, right? Like no one's no one's gonna march in the streets for the memory of of medieval nobility. Yeah, um, it's just something that like you know, obviously we're having our own moment in in the states where people are marching in the streets to protect uh, Confederate soldiers' memories, I suppose, or Confederate generals' memories. But mm-hmm. I, I can't possibly imagine that there's going to be anyone who would care here if, like, you know, someone maligned uh, an American general from the Seven Years' War, or uh, <laughs> I mean, let alone let alone something like something that happened in uh, the the fifteenth century, right? Well, it, uh, it very much depends on the political context there. Like, um, oh, interesting. Okay. Like, I think um, there's at the moment there's a lot of. Uh, controversy in the UK because uh, the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party is being invited to the government. Uh, course, and right, the, the they, uh, they're, as a, as a group, and their, their support base are very much obsessed with the events of 1690, uh, which, okay. which uh, was to do with um, the Catholic, Protestant, uh, Royalist wars uh, in Britain and Ireland at the time. Um, you know, so, so things from 1690 absolutely matter to them. Mm. Um, even if you go even further back, I can I can imagine people um, in Scotland, say, being upset if uh, there was something negative been said or done about Robert the Bruce, uh, sure, the sure, 14th century sense. king, uh, right? Because he's such a he's such a, a foundational. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of nationalism tied up in all that sort of stuff. But sure. you're, and you're right, absolutely right that people probably wouldn't care about generals from the Seven Years' War or the like. But if it was the uh, American Revolution, now that's uh... oh well, no people people <laughs> absolutely no absolutely. Um, there's a really uh, interesting podcast uh, that I was just listening to. Uh, it's new. Uh, it's by a guy who goes on Twitter as um, Ricky Rawls. Um, uh, is uh, he's his name's T on the podcast. I don't actually know his full name, but uh, the podcast is called Champagne Sharks, and he has this piece on um, Hamilton and why he doesn't like Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And he does a, a really deft job of tying up this the the fact that it is. It basically licenses um, uh, founder uh, American founder pornography. Uh, <laughs> it it through black bodies. It was like super smart, um, but like it's it's true, like yeah, <laughs> very yeah. much true that that yeah founder chic is a thing. So yeah, I get it. 
uh, I guess what's smart about, I guess what's interesting about Crusader Kings then is that these nobles that you do are, and this is, I haven't actually played uh, CK2, but I've seen a lot of people hmm. post screen caps of it on Twitter. Um, and it's, it's, you basically like make up your nobles. They're, they're anonymous in a certain way. Um, uh, to to a degree, right? you can. Um, it does feature a lot of historical, actual existing historical characters. You can start on yeah. any any date uh, between 1066 and 1337. Oh, uh, wow. okay. Uh, any date at all, and there are definitely I'll, some hagiographies there. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the. It also has historical. Like people from even before the game's time period, because you can look at family trees, um, uh, and you can go okay. right the way back. To, like you can see, for instance, Roman emperors all the way back to Octavian um, <laughs> in the family trees and stuff. And just uh, well, it, in their case, it's not so much family trees, but title holders, because um, the emperor of Rome is you know the, the Byzantine emperor uh, is still technically the same title as the first Roman emperors. But the most interesting one there is that uh, Crusader Kings covers the a, a good chunk of the world, but, and part of that chunk is uh, Muslim. And oh, okay. uh, the, the Sayyid uh, is like a, an important aspect for, for Muslims, which is, you know, their descent from, um, from Muhammad. Uh, so, like, um, it, it's you can go back from like the uh, family tree of the Abbasid caliph and find uh, Muhammad in the family trees. That's yeah, it's it's, it's so and, interesting. And they actually, this is the one concession that Crusader Kings um, to made to, I guess, sensibilities. It's that um, every character in the game has uh, generated 3D portraits, um, except Mohammed, who is oh, represented wow. purely with the Arabic calligraphy of his name. Wow! So, um, I, wow, which is a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, that is a nice touch. Actually, it's it's one of those touches that I'm sure I'm sure it was like I'm sure it was a consideration, but also it's a uh, it's elegant in a certain way that I I, I really like. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting because what I was going to argue was there's this way that Crusader Kings 2 allows this truly evil quality of nobility, which is, you know, I think a lot of people, it's more complicated uh, in, in the UK, but um, certainly in America, the idea of nobility is sort of uh, not, it's either trivialized or, or mocked. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's 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 actually much more complicated as you're laying it out because it ties in with nationality, it ties in with religion, it ties in with identity, um, and it, it becomes this moment where I was thinking about what people would argue uh, against our conversation, thinking about Europa Universalis, for instance, um, and the ways that mechanics, uh, particularly the representation of who who you're, you know, how you get into Africa, who your enemies are in Africa, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of that land uh, scramble. Um, <laughs> And and you know you could you could you could hear someone saying, well look, they're just making a video game. Like you're reading too much into it. It's it's just a video game. They have to have challenges in there. They have to have ideas in there to keep you playing. And and you know they can't. It can't be a perfect representation. So it's going to be like as you say, like a board game representation. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like it. 
from what you're saying, it seems like very important um, that we keep pressure on the idea that all of these moves actually do have a a serious and um, if not intentional, then then um, influential meaning. Absolutely. Um, I, I think these the, the way these things are portrayed is uh, possibly more influential than people give credit for in certain contexts. Uh, mm. To give a very basic example, for my own part, um, I a lot of my geographical knowledge comes from playing these kind of map games um, over the years. Uh, so, like, I could, I, I have a reasonable knowledge of, say, the various cities and provinces in Germany uh, or, or that sort of area. But right. I have a lot less knowledge of bits of, say, um, Eastern Asia. And okay. part of the reason for that is that the there's more density of provinces in these games um, in the more densely populated areas. So I can name more of them. Just It's just lodged in my brain from playing the game. Uh, in the yeah, densely naturally. populated European areas than in, say, uh, Northern Asia or Central Africa. Uh, and that's not really an ideological decision. It's more like there's going to be more action in these areas and we'll put more provinces in here for, so that it can be represented more granularly. Um, but it still ends up with imparting more knowledge about a certain area than Yeah, you can the say rest. it has ideological consequences in a yes. certain way. Yeah, um, and the I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with abstraction uh, in video games. That's or anything really, if it's in service of a purpose. But um, the way that abstraction is deployed, I think, can have an effect. And uh, the I'm thinking of uh, there was like. A game uh, a few years ago, which uh, uh, so Company of Heroes was an, a real-time strategy game. Uh, mm -hmm. It is a real-time strategy game about World War Two, right. um, and there's Company of Heroes two as well. The first one deals with um, mainly sort of the the Battle of Normandy, essentially uh, D-Day, and afterwards from an American perspective. Initially, uh, they added later uh, British and German campaigns. Um, and so they, I was deal, dealing with Market Garden, which was the failed um, airborne assault in the Netherlands. Okay. Uh, now, Company of Heroes 2 is about the Eastern Front, and so it's Soviets versus Germans. And the... The first game based itself largely off what we'd call like early 2000s kind of pop culture about World War II. So Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, that kind yeah, of that, stuff. Yeah, that kind of boom and right, right, right. Um, which um, is the same approach taken by Company of Heroes 2. But Company of Heroes 2 approach ends up being worse in a degree, to a degree because the popular conception of World War II in the Western Front, even though I would argue it's uh, false in 
parts uh, or you know unrealistic, etc., etc. Mm. It's still closer to an acceptable story than the one told by something like Enemy at the Gates, um, right. which departs so far from history in so many ways um, that if you're if you're using that as the sole source material, which they more or less are in Company of Heroes <laughs> 2, you end up with this really weird kind of um, cartoonish portrayal of the Eastern Front. So, the, for instance, uh, like what, what, what does everyone know about uh, the Eastern Front, sort of the way the Soviets fought? Or they shot their own men, right? Um, yeah, they burned the, their own fields, right? Yeah. Well, um, so like it's that uh, not one step back order. The right. Um, you know, no, no, there's to be no retreat, which was meant to be on like an operational level, um, and. Uh, and this gets represented in the game as uh, you can you can hit a button to or to say no not one step back and all your troops fight harder for a little bit but if while this is active they do retreat to your HQ a commissar standing in a in a, in a trench coat with a revolver outside your uh, HQ will execute anyone who retreats. Oh, that's ridiculous. Um, so, and, and there's absolutely nothing like that in Company of Heroes One. But this sort of this uh, this sort of mechanical thing, as well as how it was portrayed in this, the storyline, which manages to be a campaign about the Eastern Front of World War Two, where something on the scale of about thirty million people died, um, and the Germans were engaged in active genocide. Uh, it portrays that as a, a game where the only war crimes are committed by the Soviets. Ah, right, of course. Um, <laughs> where oh, of course, right. th- there's, um, there's one instance in the game of uh, the Germans... You, you play the entire campaign from the Soviet perspective. You have this mission early on where you have to rescue some civilians who are in the same apartment block as some other Soviet troops. The implication is that the Germans don't know the civilians are in there. Uh, and that if they did, they wouldn't be shooting at them. Of course um, not. So you have, if, to, if, you have to rescue them. If we know anything about point. the Nazis is that they don't commit war crimes. Exactly. But but then <laughs> later in a mission, you, you do yourself as the player murder civilians. Uh, to, <laughs> German civilians. <laughs> Once uh, much further later in the game, um, it's it's that kind of which and it's the sort of thing where like it's, this is not a denial that war crimes took place against German civilians because they did, but right. when you're when when they're the only war crimes you're portraying, it's for a very specific ideological reason, um, which is to sort of it's basically Cold War propaganda that the the game shows and it made it caused quite a stir in Russia. Um, on its release, and there's protests about it, and uh, I can imagine since they shop, shops in Russia large part refusing of, to uh, stock it and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting. It, you know, it's it because there's a num- there's a way in which like your initial uh, example of you know knowing more about German provinces than than East Asian ones. You know, immediately I'm thinking, well, yeah, I guess that speaks to the necessity of uh, broader representation in video games, which mm-hmm. is something that I struggle with because it, you know, does does broader representation trump, um, you know, a, a sort of like d- d- disinterested aesthesis 
or are they separate or are they the same thing? And it's, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a, a discussion I have, I guess, with myself, yeah. um, not, not out loud generally, <laughs> um, <laughs> thankfully, uh, <laughs> but, um, That's what you podcast for. yeah, right. I can do it out loud now. This is, it's, it's really helped. I don't have to do it in the supermarket anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, but then immediately you start thinking like, but there was, it has to be the right representation <laughs> because that's where you just gave an example where like the Eastern front is, is represented, which is a hugely important part of world war two that I feel on some level, I got lesson, I got taught a bunch about Pearl Harbor. I could tell you all about Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I know what happened. I know all the stuff about it. Um, I know about Normandy and I know about, you know, obviously we had a lot of education on the Holocaust as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, we'd never learned about the, the Eastern Front. I think, like, probably I heard about as much about the Eastern Front from Hogan's Heroes that I heard in <laughs> high school. Uh, so, you know, it's not, it, it you know, the, the basic idea about the Eastern Front is uh, it was cold. The Russia, the, the Soviets starved out the Germans by burning the fields and, and sort of, like, putting the citizens in at risk. And that was, like all they said yeah um, I, I, for my own part one of my first exposures to like portrayals of the eastern front was playing the very original call of duty um, oh, there you game, go which again yeah, takes, very its, takes its cues from enemy at the gates and the sort of one man has the rifle one man has the ammunition sort of um you know <laughs> uh the, 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 sure. the stuff that didn't happen <laughs> but, yeah of course it didn't <laughs> But, right, it's it's so it's so nakedly propaganda. Yeah, but uh, it's but it's portrayed in the game, and you think, well, this must be how it is. Look look how like realistic this this feels compared to you know at the time exactly. it certainly was like it was that verisimilitude or whatever. Um, even even though it was it, it, it certainly it, it informed my view as a teenager. Um, even though I was sort of aware this must be you know. This is a, a kind of arcadey kind of representation of it, but it must be drawn out fact somehow. It's it de- definitely did influence my own perce- perception of this to start with. Yeah, of course, and I, I think like you know, there's there's a way in which games that games like Stellaris, so you know, going into paradoxes, mm. non specifically historical games, um, games like Stellaris get away with stuff like this because, of course. You can you can represent alien races again like almost purely allegorically. Yeah. Um, you know you can you can put on them what you will in, yeah. in a sense. And I think um, I think that's actually somewhere where um, Alpha Centauri does a lot better than um, Civilization does because say, yeah. because by um, taking a sort of speculative science fiction basis, it deals with real world ideas and ideologies and uh, concepts to do with like uh, genetic engineering or um, social control, social engineering, that sort of stuff. Uh, questions of ethics. It deals with all that, but in a with this layer of detachment. So it's not going to. I mean, you do still have the sort of issues where, uh, in Alpha Centauri, you've got Chairman Yang of the, ha- the human hive, who's like the kind of Mao on steroids kind of guy who sure. nerve staples all his citizens and all that sort of stuff and it's kind of like uh-huh yeah yeah but but yellow peril kind of here uh but but it's still um it's still more palatable than it would be to have uh a game portraying say the actual mal as that and yeah and you don't 
you don't end up you don't end up having to make the choice of aligning your mechanics with something that is going to put you in a tough political position. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking again back to their answer as to why there were only three um, groups, there were only three like civilizations in Africa in um, EU uh, three. And uh, uh, Victoria like, too, it was. Yeah. Oh, it was Victoria too. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, why there were only three citizen, uh, three uh, civilizations there? Thinking about like, you know, you could make that choice in a, a space game. You could say like, yeah, like this sector of space is, you know, or any sort of speculative game. Like this yeah. sector is off ba- off bounds because like you need these various whatevers to get in there, technological enhancements, and you basically mm-hmm. like work that mechanic in. And then you never have to like you never have to impugn an entire planet. Yeah. You never have to like, you never have to suggest like yeah. an ahistorical reading of something. And it's just it's so interesting. Obviously, you know, there's a reason we like historical games too, and I'm not suggesting they stop making them. No, but absolutely I, not. I would I would that would be awful. <laughs> um, they're they're really good. And I think like the the them being really good and them having wonderful mechanics, you know, when you have them in a in a speculative place, that tension's taken out and that's both good and bad because um, I think that tension also informs ways that you know you in this case you as in Andrew not as in um, uh, the audience uh, are reading these moments of uh, where ideology actually is laid bare mm. um, moments where you sort of get that kind of uh, if you want to call it dialectical or dissonant contradiction where you're just like, wait, that actually doesn't work. Like that mechanic, the description of the mechanic and the emphasis in reality, like don't line up. Yeah. And that's actually like extremely productive. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking also, uh, this is a, another sort of World War II game example. It was a very recent game that just came out uh, called Steel Division Normandy 44, which... Oh yeah, it, that's really recent. Yeah. Um, it's one of these games with a terrible title, but it, it is very good if you're into strategy games. Um it's again portraying the Battle of Normandy with a, it's got a fairly, an eye on a fair amount of realism in how right. it portrays things, uh, sort of, you, you, you can, you're fighting with more or less the historical equipment and it's got, it's, it's abstracted but still fairly close to how things really work in terms of like, uh, armor values on tanks and like, uh, they don't have hit points. It's more to do with like penetrating shots. So like side armor is weaker, rear armor, that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And if it penetrates, it might like knock a track off, or uh, it might blow up their ammo or fuel immediately, rather than it saying you've done ten percent damage. Shoot again, uh, mm-hmm. or it might right, just yeah, exactly. off entirely. That's that, it's that, that kind of stuff. But that's um, interesting. But where this comes in is, it's caused a quite a stir among. Uh, people who have bought into this idea of superior German equipment, which is one of those oh, things no. that has definitely been um, encouraged by video games over the years, uh, especially strategy games, which have loved, absolutely loved to um, take this, you know, this idea of like the unstoppable German tanks and making like the tiger tank into some absolute monster uh, that like Company of Heroes portrayed Tiger tanks as something that could take like 20, 20 anti tank shells and still keep trucking. Um, Which sounds like not the case. No, not at all the case. Um, the 
So what's ended up happening is that the, the very sort of more realistically minded portrayal in Steel Division has made these people like demand refunds, uh, accuse the developers of being biased towards the allies, <laughs> which which is one of these phrases that you can only only really hear in uh, in video games. Surely, yeah, how how often do you hear people complaining about? You know, World War Two movies where the bias is with the Allies. Yeah, um, um, I mean, wow. World War Two movies are the exact same problem. Like Saving Private Ryan does the same thing of like the Tiger tank is a terrifying thing. That's uh, it's uh, <laughs> there's you can go on like the Steam reviews and see just all, all the negative ones. Lots of them are mentioning like the King Tiger is way too vulnerable. It can be you know destroyed with a single side shot by blah blah blah. blah. Um, yeah. Which, which they're actually they're, they're they're probably pointing at the notes and saying like, but it could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you look at the Tiger tank, there's there's actual German training manuals in the time saying do not engage Russian tanks at this distance because they will destroy you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think it's so it's so it's so true though because like I know one of the narratives and I'm thinking back to is what I learned about World War II and it was always in fits and starts. Mm-hmm. American history curriculums are not. Uh, as systematic as as you might want them to be, yeah. uh, but there's a there's a way in which I think the Germans are always framed as technological superiors, like yeah. you know this sort of like war machine, and the Allies, specifically the Americans, and you know it, it took quite a while for me to realize how uh, how not limited but how much less the American uh, contribution to World War II was than. <laughs> Uh, what we imagine it to be, uh, the, that specifically the Americans are like crafty and like um, uh, gritty and hardworking, and that's what ends up beating the the technological mm. uh, superiority. Yeah. Uh, whereas, I mean, it's it's just that's clearly not true. Like that's clearly just a ex post facto uh, grandstanding and and national identification and jingoism. Yeah. Um, but of course, we've all naturalized it. We've all taken it in and. Now we're angry if it's if it's uh, contradicted in any way. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things that Steel Division does quite well in terms of um, it, it's instead of saying you're playing as the Americans or the Germans, you're playing as uh, a historical division. So like mm. the America, the U.S. Second Infantry Division or the Third Armored Division or something like that. So you've got like the equipment nice. that they would have uh, available, like various types of Sherman tanks or. Like and the the infantry squads are armed and equipped and differently and are different numbers depending on like what they are. So the Americans have twelve men to a squad, the British have ten to a section, and that kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. Um, and they're armed differently, and the 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 Germans are actually some slightly fewer in number, but it seems it's more to do with just like the organization of how hmm. each squad was, like nine men in a squad or something instead of ten. Uh, but they're better armed, some of them. And some aren't, some aren't, some other like essentially conscripts, uh, like the Austrip and the you know the Eastern European conscripts that were shipped over to France to <laughs> yeah. fight fight the landings. And um, it's it's that it's that stage of the game too. I mean, it's not it's later into the war that you would again like this is it. It's interesting when you lay this out from a historical perspective because immediately you know you say like the tank isn't strong enough, and as, as someone who's familiar with game reviews or familiar with game mechanics, I think, like, oh, yeah, that might have been a misstep. You know, you want to make, like, the powerful thing really powerful. Um, 
But you laid out historically, and it's like, well, Normandy was a turning point in World War II because mm-hmm. it was, like, there's there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of the reasons was it was late enough in the war that there could be a turning point. Yeah, and, um, and the game does does make concessions to the gameplay rather than history. For instance, mm-hmm. um, historically, in there was in Normandy there was almost complete air superiority for the Allies. Uh, mm-hmm. In the game, it, that's not the case. Uh, okay. it, it gives the Luftwaffe its chance. It doesn't follow the, I think it was the, the possibly apocryphal German joke of like, um, the Luftwaffe is in the sky, uh, you, you know, no, no one does anything because it just doesn't exist, essentially. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, right. So, so like, there, there are more planes in a single sort of skirmish game, more German planes in a single skirmish game of, of Seal Division than there probably were in the entire Normandy campaign. Uh, in, in reality, because they just weren't there. They, 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 didn't, right. they didn't have an air force in, in the area, really, at the time. Um, hmm. but, but at the same time, they also got the Germans with, equipped with like captured French and uh, Czech equipment and stuff like that. So, like, all their second-line units in France were using this like ancient, obsolete stuff. Um, right. And, yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's lots of stuff like that in it. Which is which is really interesting. But the other aspect which I find less praiseworthy about the game is because they've taken this kind of we just want to represent history approach, it does end up having like the actual SS in the game. Ah, okay. Um like one of the divisions, the German divisions, is the um the twelfth SS Panzer Hitler Jugend division as in the Hitler youth division yeah um and so you've got like you you can play as them if you wanted um i have to say it's, it's far more satisfying to just beat them but <laughs> I, well yeah for for most of us that's true although the the reaction to um the Wolfenstein 2 trailer that just came out makes me think that there are probably a number of people that would want to play as oh, as that. there yeah. absolutely are and there's um i i run into several of those sort of people over the years uh especially any any game that allows you to play as the germans you will almost always run into people who've made their name like xx420 michael Wittmann 420xx right of course <laughs> uh, um and uh they get very very annoyed if if their superior german technology doesn't win uh either 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 outright nazis or just essentially wehrmacht fetishists yeah, sort of like Nazis, Nazis in training or in denial. Yeah, um, yeah, and th- 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 those sort of people are definitely around, and they are the kind of people getting angry at the game for not portraying the Nazi armor as unstoppable. Um, but but, it, but at the same time, it has put, it has shown the SS as just you know it just puts it there with no value judgment um, hmm. as just like another side in the game. That you can play as or against, and it it kind of feels. I'm not sure how I feel about it because I know like the 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 apolitical, doing air quotes, uh, presentation <laughs> of the SS was a deliberate strategy by um, groups trying to rehabilitate the SS after World War Two. Um, uh, okay. Which uh, it, it focusing very much on they were just another army. You know, they were the elite of the army. Um, they, they were, you know, honourable soldiers. You know, forget about the war crimes. They did all this stuff. They were really good at what they did. This is the kind of thing, which is 
really I mean, leaned into. Correct. Yeah. Uh, really, it's incorrect, and it's but it was leaned into by um, oh, all these these groups, and has been more or less in, like accepted and as pop in popular culture to some degree. Like I think most people, if they're aware of the SS and the German army, would probably think they were the elite. Um, right. Yeah, and I guess I guess I'm thinking about I I have, you know I'm interested in when I listen to like podcasts and stuff. I'll listen to, to podcasts about occult stuff and things sometimes mm. and and you know the ss figure heavily into that and anytime you sort of explain who the ss are and 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 delve deep into their origins and their i mean it's it's clearly not that so and there's they're they're poisoned so much in my own mind that i have a hard time thinking about it otherwise mm. but you're right i mean and, uh, in, in the general sense, in the u.s like, i remember yeah. remember reading in the u.s there are more historical reenactment groups uh that deal with ss units than there are that deal with world war ii u.s units Oh, interesting. Is that right? Yes, uh, significantly more. Huh. Um, it's just, it's more popular. Because everyone wants to, no one wants to be the grunt. Everyone wants to be the super special person when they're doing reenactment. Um, and the SS yeah. have been portrayed as the super special people. And, and I think games can fall into repeating these damaging propaganda lines almost unthinkingly, but they end up perpetuating them nonetheless. Yeah, and, and I mean, do you, there's, there's a way in which. So the way in which dehistoricizing the SS in that way also makes it so that the battle isn't so much between the sort of atrocity of um, fascism and 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 Nazism, mm -hmm. but uh, and sort of like um, well the battle against that let's say as opposed to framing it otherwise and, and more just like a, a general war like oh well there was this side and this side yeah. Um, and and that that's extremely dangerous. I would agree. Yeah. Um. And so I'm torn between really enjoying the game, especially in my kind of uh, uh essentially the same mindset that I had as a teenager of just thinking, you know, this the war stuff is really interesting. That's like the military history kind of aspect of it. Um. Mm -hmm. And it does it really well. But at the same time, I, I nowadays cannot separate the political aspects. Um. I find it much harder to do that now that I actually know more about that. Um, sure, of course. So I, I guess I play these things critically, but um, I still play them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, guess that, I guess that's kind of what it boils down to, is that these are mechanical choices there. And I think this is what people misunderstand in, in sort of like, I don't know, to, to, to coin a cliche or to, to risk a cliche in kind of like Gamergate's uh, circles or whatever, where there's this reaction against, analysis of games like this where it's like well look like it's a fun game like why would you why are you getting so worked up about it like just enjoy the game itself it's not it's not about politics it's mm -hmm. about gaming and you know it's not it's not so much that discussions like this preclude you from enjoying the game um i think more often than not they come because they come about because of a of a sort of like deep enjoyment or commitment or engagement with, with a game and recognition of like where its mechanics come from yes absolutely um it's it's not at all saying you shouldn't play these games i personally have more or less stopped playing civilization games but it's not because of my deep ideological disagreements with how they portray history although i do have those <laughs> as well it's more just that i've sort of gone off them as in general um i mean you, yeah well, you, you put enough hours in yeah <laughs> yeah right <laughs> Not you personally, but anyone. But I'm sure you have as well. I mean, any any of us who have played Civilization have played more Civilization than we should have. 
<laughs> I can say that about most games, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the I think, and I think especially when um, there's this reaction against any sort of criticism here, you often see the same people. It's it's very much a, an ideologically driven reaction where they will themselves complain about the politics of games if they disagree with the politics, and it's usually ones that they flag up as being progressive in some way, you know, like uh, it's, sure. it's as you sort of hinted at there, the sort of gamer gate kind of make it sort of approach. So the most recent example I can think of is actually some of the reaction to Night in the Woods, which uh, mm. is just been, you know, oh, this is a Tumblr game or something like that. And it's, it's, sure. yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, you, 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 it's that kind of stuff I'm thinking of, but these people, um, yeah, it's, it's not. It's not a, a. It's very rare, I think, that people don't want games to be analysed at all. Is that they don't want games to be analysed in ways they disagree with, or ways that make them uncomfortable. Um, yeah, and and also, I mean, you think about something like Nine in the Woods, or something like, um, you know, people's people's reaction to say the Far Cry Five trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, people, I think, like a lot of times when critiques of video games come from the right. Um, it's a critique, and this isn't to say that narrative is a bad way to consider video games, because of course narrative is important, and very much so. Yeah. About it several, yeah, with a lot of people, but they only consider the video games on the level of narrative. Like, is the narrative like to SJW or is it not? Right. Yeah. And the I, I think like conversations about mechanics or conversations about sort of like deeper analysis are either considered unserious or um, you know too liberal artsy or whatever because i mean there's a it's this it's this conflict that i think people criticizing games from the left necessarily have to come to which is that these games are really fun and they also have political commitments that we don't necessarily agree with and there there has to be a way to square that or at least if not to square it then to sort of like handle that um complexity in our own minds without and, and understanding that that comes from like the narrative and the mechanics and and the history and all sorts of aspects of the game and not just well is it is it a tumblr game or not yeah absolutely um the i mean for my own part uh i wouldn't say that what i enjoyed about night in the woods was that it was a tumblr game <laughs> so much, no, it's, much, it's not what i enjoyed about it either I, <laughs> yeah um i did very much enjoy the political content of it um, speaking as a socialist, but mm-hmm. um, it was far deeper than that. But I, I can I can enjoy the um, the way that mechanics get influenced by politics. If you know if it's something that I do particularly agree with. In fact, you mentioned um, Stellaris and how that was uh, received and how that was maybe a safer way for them to go than historical portrayal. But there was. Um, some controversy with Stellaris uh, in how it portrayed its ethics, um, mm. where initially it was individualist versus collectivist, um, and mm. collectivist was portrayed as being the pro-slavery side. Oh, no. Um, and individualist <laughs> was in a weird place between being like equality, rights, and also free market business and Ayn Rand. Um, 
<laughs> so that ended up in one of the most recent updates um, a couple of months ago. They changed that. They, they changed it completely, and it became total. It became authoritarian and egalitarian instead. Um, hmm. Instead of collectivist and individualist, uh, which is, is an improvement. It's, it's got its own problems as a. Um, yeah, I was I was actually trying to figure out how I felt about that because egalitarian always rubs me the wrong way. But I guess if you're <laughs> if you're going to compare it to the difference between collectivist uh, being the bad guys and individualist being the good guys, yes, yes. that is an improvement. Yes, um, I mean it, it, mechanically in the original version of Stellaris, you could not be a collectivist democracy, huh. um, which is yes, That's funny, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of on the nose you, in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, you could you could either be an oligarchy or an autocracy uh, huh. if you were collectivist, which is um, certainly a way to look at it. <laughs> I, yeah, it's one way to look at it. It's uh, again like if you know if it's if the head of the company is an avowed Thatcherite. I well, well, well not the head of the company. It. it was just a designer who was who was. Oh, it was it. just a designer. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Well, he did also come back to um, work on game mechanics for Stellaris. Uh, oh, there you go. So it is quite possible that he was involved with this. Um, I thought that's. I mean, to imagine, uh, I, I can I could see Maggie Thatcher saying that collectivism is only an autocracy or a, an oligarchy. Mm. I can picture it in my mind's eye. Uh, Thatcher or Trotsky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, nice uh, a, a dig. I think that might be our first trot dig. On the, uh, <laughs> Glad to on make the podcast. Trip. Speaking of, like which, speaking of which, speaking of which, and again, paradox related, um, in terms of companies portraying something that they might not necessarily agree with, Hearts of Iron 4, which is Paradox's World War II grand strategy game, um, takes the firm position that the Stalinist purge was justified. <laughs> because um, if, nice. if the Soviet Union does not carry out the Great Purge, then there is actually a Trotskyist coup. <laughs> <laughs> and Stalin is deposed by Trotsky in the Soviet Union. Um, wow! And again, this is a, this is a, a a choice they made for game mechanic reasons, but it does end up taking a very firm position on the reality or otherwise of the justifications for the purges. Yeah, I mean, my guess would be that that guy, the Thatcherite, was not involved with, uh, <laughs> with that particular decision. I do not believe so. Uh, <laughs> Wow, that's I. You know, I, I remember someone talking about the uh, the sort of Trotskyist uh, and Stalinist um, uh, tensions in Hearts of Iron Four, but I, I've never actually heard exactly what happened. So that's that's pretty great. I think it might have been um, Ian Williams might have talked about this a bit. Um, I think Ian Williams on Twitter uh, sounds like his jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah Brock Brock Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, but it's it, when. Um, <laughs> When I realized how this was actually manifesting in the game, it de- definitely made me laugh. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's gone, it's, it's it, gone uh, full Grover fur on. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It, shockingly, shockingly, the first Grover fur reference on this web on this podcast, <laughs> which uh, is is actually just uh, that. Well, that's I've got, I've got a list of milestones in front of me here, and I'm really just trying to knock them all off. You know. Yeah, no, no, keep keep going, keep going. Um, <laughs> No, the uh, I I'll, I'll tell the story of um, my uh, my advisor in uh, graduate school, um, Nicholas Brown was a uh, he for a while ran the uh, Marxist literary group Listserv, um, which I, I mentioned because Grover is is a is a 
you know, recurring recurring contributor to to said listserv. Um, very, he just sent an email last night actually about a uh, a, uh, a conference he was at in Germany where like a bunch of European communist groups got together, and he said how great it was, and he included a song uh, that they sang with lyrics and stuff. It was very very earnest, uh, which I think is is the, the central way to describe Groove. But uh, uh, I, I was I was talking to Nicholas about Grover, um, and uh, he said something along the lines. Someone had mentioned it to him. And, you know, everyone everyone in the MLG like like Grover. He's a uh, I've never met him in person, but apparently he's a he's a lovely person. Um, but but he said to me, uh, yeah, the person the person was talking to me, and he said, well, we uh, we should be thankful for Grover because um, Grover shows us like when we look at Grover, we see like this, this extreme version of, of, um, of a sort of like Soviet orthodoxy. Um, and it looks foreign to us, but to everyone else in the world, we're all Grover. <laughs> I, I was like, that's really true. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> he has, he has that level of commitment that, uh, that I think, you know, we all, we all w- agree with him or dis. I, I think like his level of commitment is beyond admirable. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Um, I, I can't can't say uh, I, I necessarily agree with his historiography, but his commitment can't can't impugn that. And you're absolutely no, you're absolutely no, of course right not to, to the outside world, or not necessarily the outside world, but certainly political opponents. Uh, everyone's a Stalinist. Um, I mean, mm. at the moment in this, this country, you're seeing the moderate social democratic leader of the Labour Party being called a Stalinist repeatedly um, in the press. So <laughs> sure. I, yeah, the 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 one I liked the most was uh, when he was described as uh, when Corbyn was described as left of Marx, <laughs> which, which I thought was pretty <laughs> that was a pretty bold claim. <laughs> I was like, all right, wow, <laughs> I hope so. Bakunerite. <laughs> uh, better that than a young Hegelian, I suppose. Um, <laughs> well, um, this has been great. I. Do you have any like final thoughts we didn't hit on? Um, uh, anything that you were you were really hoping to to touch on? I don't think so. I could I could keep pulling out examples of other games and other other mechanics and stuff, but I think like, I've I think that's enough to be going on with. And uh, that's yeah. I I think we've covered more or less everything. Now, there are no answers to be had here. I just find it interesting to um, oh no interrogate yeah. how this stuff works and how it's uh, how it's all deployed. No, I agree, and I think like I think there's something that um, there's something that's very true about the uh, very true about like the the level at which mechanics tend to influence narrative on a, a sort of subterranean or subcutaneous uh, uh, stage, where like the ways in which we experience games from their interfaces not only influence the games themselves, but influence our understanding of the world surrounding the games themselves. And you're right. I mean, there's no way to answer that. There's no way to say, like, and so games should be doing this instead of that. Um, but actually, like, recognizing the problem and, and, and or recognizing the controversy and, uh, you know, working out its its complexities is very worthwhile, I think. I agree. Um, anything you want to plug? Before you go, I know you you have a you have a a, a publication uh, yourself, correct? Uh, yes, uh, um, I co-run a video game website, uh, which is very small time at the moment, uh, and slightly inactive. Although I'm hoping to get more stuff on it very soon. 
uh, called Left Shift, which is www.left-shift.com. Uh, it's a great name. And, <laughs> so good. Um, it's writing from myself and several others. Uh, and I think I'm not going to speak to my own pieces, but I think everything else on there is, is really great. And I'll speak to Andrew's pieces. They're very good. <laughs> Thank you. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, the very much worth a look if you're into left-themed uh, analysis of games or just, just even game reviews, some of them, uh, or that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. I can't think of anything else. I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, as, as mentioned at the start of the podcast, uh, at Andrea Dunn, that's A-N-N-D-R-A-A-D-U-N-N. And, um, oh, the, the, Website has a Twitter account as well, which is at Left Shift Game. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Great. And yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, if if you're not, Left if you're not games. following, sorry, Left Shift Games. Okay, um, <laughs> if you're not following uh, Andrew and the rest of uh, Left UK Twitter, um, I I firmly believe and have believed for years that you are using the website wrong. Um, that that is that is that that group uh, who some of whom write for Left Shift and some of whom don't uh, are are essentially like one of the top two things about Twitter. Um, so thank you so much for being on. This is this has been great. No, thank you for having me. Uh, enjoy this a lot. All right. Okay. Yeah. Anytime. Absolutely. Uh, next time, next time a grand strategy game comes out, you'll be you'll be the first person I call. <laughs> thank you. Wait, they seem to be coming out all the time. So it's it's a golden era. Someone really yeah. spent that great man. Uh... <laughs> thank, thank goodness they spent it on this <laughs> <laughs> really got the priorities sorted out alright well thank That's you right. and uh, yeah thank you bye alright bye